When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. Before we get started, go ahead and hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening from right now. We put out interviews every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at Consequence of Sound, and would love to keep you up to date on those. Uh, whether you're checking us out on Spotify, on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from, hit that subscribe button. I'm Kyle Meredith. Today, my guest is Kurt Kirkwood of the band Meat Puppets. Meat Puppets are back. They've got a brand new record called Dusty Notes. It's a fantastic listen that puts them in a bit of a, a folk and country vibe with a lot of banjo and some uh, calliope as well. In fact, Kurt's going to take us through how it's the original lineup back together for the first time in about 20 years and also includes even his son Elmo in the band these days. We'll get some story behind songs like Nine Pins, Vampire's Winged Fantasy, and the first single, Warranty, and how lyrically it finds some shared DNA with some of his uh, back catalog. And speaking of the back catalog, of course, we're going to take some time traveling trips on here to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Too High to Die. This was a breakthrough record for them in the mainstream. They had a huge hit with the single Backwater. And of course, it came right on the heels of uh, them performing with Nirvana on MTV's Unplugged. He's going to take us through that Unplugged, what happened afterwards that was kind of lining up with this record, and what happened after Kurt Cobain's death of April of 1994, just three months after they had released Too High to Die. We'll turn the clockbacks even further, too, to 1989 when they released Monsters. That was, their, uh, that was their final record for SST Records, the independent record label that they had stayed on throughout the 80s. It was a record that featured very big riffs, sometimes a bit of a metal sound. But at the same time, there was a Beach Boys influence. Not the classic Beach Boys. We're talking about the late 80s, the Kokomo-era Beach Boys influence, and some Def Leppard on top of that. It's a really interesting story, and I uh, so appreciate talking with Kurt all about it. It's Kyle Meredith with Meat Puppets. Hi, Kyle. This is Kurt. First off, I want to throw you the compliments on Dusty Notes. Uh, It's another great record, man. I mean, you know, 35, nearly 40 years of doing this, and you're still putting quality music out every single time. Thank you much. I know part of the story with this one is, you know, you've now got the original lineup back together for the first time in 20 years. How important was that to the way this record came out? Oh, it's kind of everything. 
you know, the having Derek back is a, just huge. We had no idea what we were going for, really, because he just stepped in. And we didn't rehearse or anything. We just made the thing. But that's kind of how we made some of the best stuff that don't have too too much of an idea uh, of what we're doing. But it was, um, you know, didn't have any idea. He hadn't played drums in a long time, but he killed it. And then got Ron Stabinski playing with us also. Not, uh, doesn't go back so far. But I think he's been listening to us for about 20 years, and it's that's huge too. Yeah. First album with keyboards in the band. Yeah, no, that really sticks out on uh, on Nine Pins. I mean, that's I, I love if that's him doing that. I, I love what he's doing on that song. <laughs> yeah, the Calliope. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know you, you, the Calliope. It, it I mean that evokes you know what what you know sometimes carnivalesque or, or old steamboat, and, and it's such an interesting nearly a contrast to what you're doing within the songs, you know, and sort of, um, and I'll use that word again, dusty, you know, sort of that dusty road type of uh, of concept. Yeah, you don't hear the calliope with the banjo a lot either. That was, Chris plays banjo, so he put that on there and it uh, came out kind of different. I mean, you've done banjo stuff for a long time and you've always had kind of a country lean in a lot of your songs throughout history. Bakersfield's also been brought up, but I, I really do hear that on, on Sea of Heartbreak, you know, that, that Bakersfield sound, which um, I don't know, I guess not so far removed from Arizona geographically, but but it feels like that'd be worlds apart musically. Yeah, you know, Arizona has its own country thing, and being Western, like Bakersfield, you, yeah, it's, you know, they say country Western, but a lot of country music is more, you know, you're going to think more of the South and Nashville and stuff. You don't so often think about people from California and Arizona doing it, but... You know, you got Buck Owens growing up in Phoenix uh, for a large part of the childhood. And then, you know, Marty Robbins is from Phoenix. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, it has its thing. I, I grew up on that stuff. I grew up around the horse racetrack. Well, why we moved to Arizona was racehorses. Oh. And uh, spent spend the winter there. And uh, so the the country music was always playing. And I never really thought of myself as a country western musician, but it is fun to play. Interesting the connection we've got right now, especially me being in Louisville. I mean, it's if it ain't bourbon country, it's racehorse country over here and and plenty of country music as well. Oh, sure. So you mentioned, I mean, no rehearsals or whatever. How, how formed were these songs as you brought them into the studio then? Well, basically... Ron had come out to Austin, and he and I jammed for the first time. Since he was coming out, I, I wrote up four or five little chord sequences, and, and we just played together, and and he started, you know, he played a few of the things you hear there. I was like, oh, that's cool, like the calliope thing. And so then I had those, you know, just basic chord structures. So then a couple months later, uh, we started doing it. I just laid the acoustic guitars down, and uh, Ron played some uh, keyboards along to that. I wrote up enough to have the album and then grabbed See a Heartbreak. I always loved that song. And we kind of had it. We just fleshed it out there, put drums on, bass. Elmo Elmo and I did the guitars first. The whole album is acoustic guitar based. I think it gives it a real cool thing in the, you know, it's it's fleshed out enough to where it doesn't sound like an acoustic album, but that's the, the skeleton is two acoustic guitars initially. And then everything else added on. But we just kind of went for it. And everybody... Just did their thing. I didn't say much. 
I was busy writing lyrics, trying to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that that acoustic thing it probably is most surprising on uh, Vampire's Winged Fantasy, which, uh, you know, finds you bringing the, um, I mean, that's a crazy, that's a crazy uh, little jam you got going on there. Yeah, once again, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a typical, you know, for me, it's West Side Phoenix, you know, kind of you go back to like uh, Highway Star, Deep Purple, stuff like that sabbath my early teens and then uh ron just came up with that nuts keyboard part which is just takes it over the top there's there's a bunch of keyboard stuff that on that that's over the top <laughs> but yeah it's hard yeah it's still it's a two acoustic guitars banging away at that dumb metal riff <laughs> You know, you, you, Elmo, your son being in the band, and, and, and you know your brother, and, and we always hear about a family connection. And you've played with a lot of people over the years, but but do you find that that's that that family connection um, idea is true? That there is that you know that sixth sense that's shared, but you know, in, in those moments, you know, that's yeah, it's true. You spend a lot of time together, and you have a good bond there and understanding. I think it's shared between you know uh, intuitive musicians as well, in a way. It's and friends, you know, I've I've been lucky. I've always played with friends. I've, I have played with a good number of people, but I've never been able to just go, hey, I need somebody and let's have, uh, let's do, you know, tryouts and stuff like that. I've, it's always kind of had to be friends and uh, kind of feel the connection going in a little bit. I also want to hit on the uh, the first single here with Warranty, which uh, I'll say that we have been playing the crap out of at WFBK here, and it sounds so good on the air. Oh, cool. I get a vibe of, um, from this song, you know, I guess lyrically, I get a vibe of sort of I am what I am and you shouldn't expect anything more. Yeah, you know, I leave that stuff kind of open. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at tricking myself. I'll write stuff that rhymes and then if it doesn't make sense kind of like you know in a way i don't like it to be completely completely you know just a jumble but uh, i edit a lot and then if it makes too much sense i'll edit that out i like it to be open to interpretation i don't like to spell stuff out so much largely because i don't really have any intention of doing that and sometimes when you write that just happens because we're kind of trained to write to make sense and to communicate but I like people to form their own opinions about it and I would say that's not a, an unfair assessment of that song. I'm you know, I'm not good at, at, at pinning down what my own stuff's about either, really, in the long run. Once I hear it back, I'm like, oh, clever. Interesting. It's a, <laughs> I might be barking up the wrong tree then, you know, trying to make these connections here. But, you know, hearing you... No, 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 go ahead. This is what it's for. <laughs> well, Everyone it's... gets to make a connection. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, as you refer to the Invisible Man in in that song, you know, I listen back in and another one of my favorites, uh, Disappear, off of the Rise to Your Knees album, and then all the way back to We Don't Exist. And I feel like maybe this is something that you've touched on throughout your life. And, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously, you know, an Invisible Man, We Don't Exist and Disappear sort of, to me, says something about or can say something about how how you might perceive yourself. Yeah, I don't know. They say to your own self, be true, whatever, whoever said that. Um, I just, I, it's hard to know yourself at the same time. Yeah, I kind of wish I knew a lot of that stuff. With this song, yeah, and I do like that stuff. I always liked, I like the Invisible Man movie. I like the idea of somebody being invisible yeah. anyway. But I also thought it was kind of funny how, like, somebody goes, oh, look, it's the Invisible Man. Well, <laughs> If you can't see him, how can you say, look, that's the Invisible Man? <laughs> it's almost a Mitch Hedberg. I don't know if you remember that comedian. That's something that he would come up with right there. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it's pretty good. 
I want to take the opportunity, as, as I kind of mentioned, we don't exist, because a couple of your records uh, are, are having you know, nice anniversaries this year, and Too High to Die being one of those. 25 years of that record. I mean, that's a, that's a landmark record, not just in your career, but uh, in uh, alternative music as we knew it, especially in the 90s. That one is such a prominent one. How does that one sit with you these days? Oh, I still think it's pretty good. It was a, it was a big step forward for us, in a way, uh, just in how it was received we had made a, the uh, record before that Forbidden Places for London already, but we that was our first with any money and with a producer working with Peter Anderson, and we were learning a lot. We weren't still so comfortable with, you know, trying to make something that the big record label would take. You know, they weren't down with, like, how we made records at S- ST so much because we would just go in and, and just do those things and not make any amendments to them, right? And, you know, with you trying to get something on the radio with the big label at that time this stuff had to be kind of sewn up and polished a little bit we weren't used to that but we got paul leary in there for too high to die and that was he was an old friend already at that point and um one of our running buddies so they just let us loose with enough money to to polish things up the way we wanted to you know and we we had learned with that that first major label record so we kind of knew a little bit and it was uh i thought it came out pretty good yeah i don't i don't look back much on stuff and once i leave the studio i always kind of think well that's done and like it or not of course so backwater does become you know quite the big single you know it's a a top 10 hit right there on the modern rock charts success at last i mean is that the perception here because i mean you all had been doing at this point for you know, nearly, you know, what, 15 years almost, and, and, and or around there, I guess, and to finally have that lift off. I mean, did, were, were you able to enjoy that? Oh, sure. That's fun. Definitely. That was a lot of fun. I mean, we always, we always liked what we did, and we always thought, you know, primarily just gloating to yourself over, you know, what you've done is kind of the point of art in a way. So we, we were good at that, the three of us. And, uh, but, you know, having some kudos come from the outside and then kind of having it be you know a stir it's it's good it's that's a lot of fun you know i it was kind of strange to me i didn't think it was my favorite song the album by any means i thought it sounded like atlanta rhythm section or something and it was okay um i mean it didn't bother me but i thought it was odd that are they gonna go with that okay you know i just don't i wouldn't know i don't know how to write a song to get on the radio or anything i just doesn't you know i'm only kind of you know echoing my uh childhood influences if anything and i don't know in that it is pop music largely you can throw in your mahavishnu orchestra and your prog rock and all kinds of crazy crap that i just love but ultimately you know i'm gonna go back to disney soundtracks and the beatles the the b side of that uh white sport coat i mean if i had that right that had they might be giants the john singing backup for you uh, how did that happen well, our manager at the time, Jamie Kipman, uh, I think he still manages. They might be giants. So knew those guys a little bit. I just met him. I didn't know him very well. But once we recorded it, they heard it, and they were like, hey, can we do that? It's like, hell yeah, that'll be fun. <laughs> so it was done already, and they went and slapped that on there and just took it right out. It's, it's, it's a fun idea of a concept. It's not two bands I would have instantly thought to put together, but you all – I guess had shared so much similar history, you know, coming from uh, the similar, you know, 80s college rock scene and all that stuff. Right, right. We're an alternative 
you get thrown in there, but kind of like, what are we? You right. know, and same with those guys. We got, we always gone through whatever they're throwing us up there with. Was it Americana? Was it hardcore punk? Suddenly we, you know, it was alternative. It was, is it grunge? You know, we just went through a lot of phases. We just floated through that. We never really targeted any of it. This is the record that comes right after the, you know, Nirvana Unplugged uh, performance. And, and, of course, a new version of Lake of Fire ends up as the uh, the hidden track on this, which I would guess is that being one of the reasons. You know, coming off of Unplugged, did it feel like the attention was on you suddenly, like extra more than usual? Well, no. What happened was that record, Too High to Die, was already done when we did Unplugged. And uh, it was just ironic we had done, uh, you know, had just done, some acoustic versions we did up on the sun and lake of fire and stuff. And but they, they just happened to be around and the songs that Nirvana wanted to do on their unplugged was stuff that we were still playing anyway. Like probably the, my three favorite songs were up there uh, from me puppets too, but they were done already. So it was just ironic. Interesting coincidence. But what happened was, you know, the, the unplugged thing, we had the record done they're still kind of, there's some interest. They're going, hey, you know, this is, it's a, you're getting closer to giving us something we can work with here in the big league, whatever. But then when we did uh, the Unplugged, that gave us some credence in the, you know, upper ranks there at the at the label. They're going, oh, we don't really get who these guys are, but, you know, if they did this, it must be cool. So <laughs> that, then they got, you know, they got behind the record even more. With Kurt dying, you know, just a few months after the record comes out, I mean, to me, the Meat Puppets were one of the bands at that point as closely associated with with what was happening in Nirvana world because of, you know, all of that and and the nice things Kurt had said about you. But with his death, I I mean, it's probably an obvious question, but what kind of impact did that have on, on, on the rest of the year for you all? Well, it started pretty, you know, a little bit before he died. We were we went we flew over to to Europe and uh, we had a bunch of shows set up over there. Some of our own, and then some with Nirvana. We so we basically we were over there. We we're supposed to start the tour with them in Prague, and then he had an overdose in Rome, and that tour got canceled. So we we're over there. We filled in with some of our own, and then waited till Soul Asylum. Uh, came over there who we were supposed to hook up with after Nirvana and we did that but right away there early kind of earlier in the year it started like wow that sucks you know something's wrong here it's had this fiasco in in Rome and then I was just worried about it and then sure enough like we came back from Europe and got off the plane in San Francisco and that was the news he's dead it's like ah, here we're we're just having, you know, a good streak here, and people are, you know, liking this new record. And and then, but uh, a a big part of our warm envelope, which was like, you know, how I looked at it, just like, just was nice and and cool. It's, you know, those guys are great to play with, and I liked I liked the show we did with the unplugged. You know, was was wasn't to be a record quite yet. That didn't happen. That was a I think a posthumous decision, really. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh man, that's that puts a strange spin on the whole year since here we are just kind of floating on pretty magic time for us. And then, you know, the bad side of it. And, but, you know, well, you know, on the plus side, I'll point out, um, kind of awkwardly, I guess that, uh, you know, you do end up uh, being nominated for an MTV award at the end of all that. We don't exist. So, you know, it wasn't like the magic, it doesn't seem like the magic was completely sucked out. You know, there was still, you know, some accolades yet to come. Oh yeah, and, uh, we were 
we were we were fine. I mean, except you know, we did three months on the road that summer. With we came back and did three months with Stone Temple Pilots, one of the biggest tours of the year, next to like the Eagles Hell Freezes Over tour. Right, right. You know, we had a blast on that. We finished up with that, and then kind of to start trying to deal with the follow up. No joke, which is that yeah. There, then yeah, there's pressure then because you had something big and they they want more big, and it's just like. Oh crap! I'm I don't know how to do that. You know, just make another record. But uh, for the, I think in a lot of ways it was, you know, we weren't. It's not like we we couldn't handle the pressure. We just didn't really like it that much. I don't I don't think Derek liked it that much. I know, you know, my brother had his own way of rebelling against it. I tried to play along, keep my chin up, be kind of a suck ass as much as I could, yeah. because what else are you gonna do? I mean, you got a contract and I like all those people I'm trying to help everybody get what they want and the you know on the radio and sales and everything but that's not really how I ever did it we spoiled because we came up with you know whatever 10 albums before that at SST just doing whatever we wanted to and yeah we we learned how to play along a little bit but at the same time it's just like yeah it's not as much fun or something so yeah. hence the uh semi disillusionment and just the kind of thing just kind of went out of my control. I had wound up on a little odyssey, uh, moving away from Phoenix, trying to keep the thing above water somehow. Right. Well, you know, you brought up SC, uh, SST, and I, I want to hit on uh, your final record with them because Monsters uh, also celebrates its uh, 30th anniversary later this year which was a record that I was a little bit familiar with, but I definitely dove in deeper than I think I ever have before this interview. And it's such a powerful, powerful record. And I thought what was really interesting on, on a listen with, you know, with sort of these glasses on is a lot of bands have cited you as an influence. And, and a lot of those, you know, 90s alternative and grunge bands that we've been talking about have cited the Meat Puppets as an influence. But you can really hear a lot of those riffs on monsters that would go on to become... Soundgarden riffs or whoever three to four years you know later uh, yeah I could kind of see that it was a different record for us in a way I was you know I always I never tried to I never wanted to repeat myself all the SST records are kind of different we had the opportunity to do that they weren't interested in us stereotyping ourselves or so we just you know took advantage of that Monsters was it was different in the other way too in that it somehow and I forget how Peter Kupke, who wound up starting London Records USA, which we put out uh, for him places, Too High to Die and No Joke on, he was working at Atlantic at the time as an A&R guy. He's A&Ring Robert Plant's solo career, Pete Townsend's solo career, over in London. So he heard that Monsters record somehow, and he wanted to put it out on Atlantic, as it was. They wanted it. It was already recorded for SST. And that's, you know, I, I had used my own money to record it pretty much you know wasn't expensive didn't really have a written contract with sst so i figured well let's give it to them and i taught you know talk to guys at sst and they're like oh you traitor you suck <laughs> i was like oh, you know it's a big chance for us and we can get some distribution how about you know we'll just let's let them put it out you can be in on it whatever they want to give us you know they wanted to give us some pretty good money for it, but now they want to stick to their guns. They, you know, it was an SST record to them. And so it wound up coming out on that, but that was how the interest in, you know, from the major, that was our, 
that was our first interest there. So the next record came out on London, and we proceeded to iron things out over the years with SST. You know, you're talking about the, that big label interest, and I know they've kind of been there uh, off and on for, for a little while, but, I mean, this is the groundswell to what would become, you know, as, as we knew the 90s. Did, did, you, did you notice the sea change was coming? Could you feel that from, from what was happening? Uh, what I felt was t- touring a lot and not seeing our records in enough places, not there, there not being enough of them. Uh, the supply and the and demand wasn't what suddenly wasn't matching up. And I was like, oh, no, we got to get some better distribution because we've been touring. We could see, you know, it was a lot. Of, it was it had been college radio, independent radio, independent record stores by and large. But then. People are just going, we can't get your record here, this and that, and starting to see the difference there. It's just like, well, we're doing all this work out here on the road, and we like playing, but, yeah, obviously we got to, you know, figure out something in the back in the storeroom, figure out how that's that works out. So I could kind of see it coming, and I could see how they were starting to look at it, too, the, the majors starting to go and see how this underground swell uh, could relate to dollars for them. You, you mentioned, you know, trying out different sounds and this being, you know, just a, another variation, another step in a, a direction. But, but you know, I guess to, to my ears, it's it's probably was more metal, uh, you know, to stamp a, a genre on it, I guess. And, and, and in that sense, I was wondering, was that just a natural progression of the times or, or were you sort of saying, well, I'd like to try this more? Well, you know what it was, was I, I always saw a sense of irony in in uh, just in calling one thing cooler than the other in music, you know, and like, oh, this is this is newer, this is what's trending, this is modern, this is not, this is contemporary. With the punk rock scene and the underground scene like that in the '80s, it was always kind of like, oh, you you can't sell out, you know, what what are you trying to be there, George Michael or something, you know? And I always thought it was fun to. You know, I made a, a hard couple of hardcore records, the first little sing, you know, 45, mm-hmm. the five-song thing, and then the first one, the first Meat Puppets. And then, you know, it stayed, Meat Puppets 2 was kind of, you know, sounded a little ragged, but definitely wasn't punk rock. And I was trying to go, well, let's throw folk music in there with punk rock. Let's throw the Stephen Foster and the and the Woody Guthrie in there and, and not do punk rock, because we did that. And... And like the way the audiences were throwing a bunch of stuff at us anyway, and spitting a lot, we weren't, we didn't fit in that well with a straight up punk scene. And so it was just a way also of just, you know, pleasing myself going, I like a lot of different kinds of music. So then Up on the Sun comes up next and I was listening to Duran Duran and Prince, uh-huh. right? So that's that. Here's my different take on some of that. And then, you know, I don't, not very good at being imitated but that was my some of my influences there by the time we got to monsters and you know you have to also i'm you know i I don't sit around and 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 get obsessive about stuff very much either i listen to stuff and i'll listen to current stuff and i'm pretty open-minded and just i just want to understand you know and absorb a lot of stuff so i'm not like some huge fan of a lot of this stuff i just i listen to it and it's kind of cool and uh Monsters at that time, pretty sure that would have to be Def Leppard. <laughs> so, you know that kind of thing. Right. I mean, what right. else was? Let's see. What was around? It was 
I don't, I don't, I never like to call it hair metal because everybody has hair of one kind or another. <laughs> and, or whatever. It wasn't really our scene, but uh, it was a few things that were around that were like that. And once again, something that I came from, or they came from too, for sure. I think I just wanted to get louder guitars and uh, get the uh, the vocal harmonies nice and tight on that one was was what it was. You know, you talk about those those contradictions of of just things that you're listening to kind of seeping into the music. Uh, I, I guess I read uh, in in a interview from a few years ago that you know attacked by monsters from the record uh, sort of had a, a ties to you listening to the Beach Boys Kokomo. Oh yeah, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> I totally swiped that. <laughs> It's a that's an interesting song to be swiping from because when I listen to Attack by Monsters, that would have never occurred to me. But I love knowing that the DNA is in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I love the Beach Boys and and uh, Kokomo is a great song and it's uplifting, beautiful. Interesting, uh, interesting little connection there. Well, uh, Kurt, I, I really do appreciate you, you especially taking the the time travel trip with me here. But but uh, especially. Uh, talking about the new record, Dusty Notes. I, I love what you guys are doing. I love what you've always done, and I think this is another fun example of that. Uh, congratulations on it. Uh, thank you, Kyle. Appreciate that. Yeah, uh, This has been fun. Uh, thank you so much, and I, I hope to see you out on the, the tour soon. Yeah. Stop by and say hi. All right, man. Take care. You too. Talk right. to you soon. Bye. A really big thanks to Kurt Kirkwood of the Meat Puppets. The new record is called Dusty Notes. And if you haven't already, uh, hit that subscribe button so you can keep up with all of the interviews that we put out every single week. Again, whether you're checking us out on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Spotify or YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts from, hit the subscribe button. And after that, head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern, where you can also find some bonus episodes of this series over there. Consequenceofsound.net has all of your music and film news needs. You can find me at Twitter, at Kyle Meredith, Facebook, slash Kyle Meredith. That does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.